welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Colossians chapter 2, and it's verses 8 to 10. Let's hear the wonders of the Word of God. Paul wrote to these believers, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This is God's eternal word. May it have its powerful impact on our hearts once again. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Praise the Lord for his marvelous, marvelous word. Well, let me ask you this. Do you know a professing Christian who has now left the faith. Many of us do. Maybe it's a friend, a friend you used to be in the fellowship with, who now, when you see them and you talk about Christian things, they say, you know, I, 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 I just don't believe in that anymore. Or maybe it's a child or a grandchild through influences, through experiences as they've gone into a college setting or because of the influence of of a skeptic. They've left their faith. They they just disowned it. There's a lot of grief there, isn't there? Or maybe you've watched the the Christian news when you've seen the stories about a Christian leader, a well-known pastor or an influential worship leader who has, well, been part of what, what is being called having their faith deconstructed. It's a new term that's actually been coined to describe the loss of one's faith. I don't like the term. I think it's a false term, and I'll tell you about that in this message. But it's a very real occurrence, isn't it? We see it. We, we, we read the stories. We hear the, the stories. Or maybe you, you know someone who's not left the faith, but they've wandered into false teaching. They've gotten involved in liberal theology. They still claim to be Christian, but you know that now what they believe doesn't honor Christ. Or they've wandered off into another religion altogether. They, they have a, a distinct departure in, in their whole relationship with God. These are serious matters. They're heartbreaking, and they're happening with greater frequency in our darkening culture. And they're difficult to watch and deal with, but they're not new. What's happening now happened in Paul's time, and in the epistle to the Colossians, he speaks to the very issue of being tempted to leave your faith or let your faith be invaded by false teaching, by the traditions of men, by deceitful words, and to becoming captive to those things. So Paul speaks to that issue, which is our issue. He speaks to it because in the church at Colossae, they were threatened by false teachers. As you've 
You now know, as we've studied it this far, one of the great purposes of the epistle was to confront this false teaching, to speak to it and uh, deal with it as it threatened the church. Now, Colossae was influenced by false teachers who wanted to do a number of things. They wanted to, do, to diminish the true understanding of who Jesus is as God, the God-man, the Son of God, and to diminish their, the understanding of those believers about what Jesus did in his cross work. So it, it sought to diminish Jesus, and it sought to diminish their confidence in the teaching of the apostles, which would become the Word of God to diminish their confidence in the word of God that they had in the Old Testament, to in, instead of uh, having great confidence in the revealed word of God, the false teachers sought to increase their, their lack of security in what they've been taught. And into that vacuum of insecurity, they wanted to bring their own false teachings and false ideas about the God of the Bible and the person of Jesus Christ. They wanted to add their own invented knowledge their own false ideas. And they wanted to lead these believers into believing that they didn't know all that they needed to know and that Jesus Christ was not sufficient and they needed new supernatural experiences. They needed further revelation from these false teachers and they needed to wrap themselves into a life of good deeds and earning a relationship with God. So there's a whole spectrum of deception that these believers were being attacked by. And this whole environment is what Paul spoke to in chapter 2. We know he starts in the the early part of the chapter by saying in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Here he's moving into the purpose of this next body of teaching in Colossians 1, or Colossians, the epistle rather. Colossians 1 was about the great glories of Christ, the magnificence of who they really knew. Chapter 2 is the heart of how Paul confronts this false teaching, beginning at verse 4, amplifying at verse 8, and going all the way through verse 23. He confronts false false teaching and the the idea of being spiritually deceived. So we're now in the heart of the epistle that's filled with warning. Remember I told you good preaching contains teaching and warning. Lots of teaching in chapter one, lots of warning in chapter two. So that's where we are. And, And what Paul does in this chapter, in my mind, is he attacks the old problem of deception and he teaches them to do something that, well, I've, I've put a phrase to it. He teaches them to build an, an undeceivable mind. An undeceivable mind. He teaches them how to stand against this attack with confidence so that they will not be deceived. He says in the beginning of verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. He's telling them, I want you to stand. I want you to know how to build a mind that will not be taken captive. So we presume we can have undeceivable minds. We presume we can stand against it. That's so important because it's automatically forgotten by most people who fall into deception. So this is all about building an undeceivable mind. How do we do it? There are two dimensions uh, that that really rotate around two uh, verbal pieces in the text. See to it is the first. And there he says, you do it by building a clear conviction about falsehood. 
In verse 8, he takes apart falsehood, and he shows us seven different things that are true of it, that once you understand false teaching, you'll never be interested in it. So you begin, number one, by building a clear conviction about falsehood. That's in verse 8. And then secondly, you build an undeceivable mind by building a compelling conviction about Christ. That's verses 9 and 10. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive, verse 8, because in him, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. To preach the whole passage in a sentence, you don't need to pay attention to false teaching because you know the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God himself, and thus you know everything. Don't fool with it. You don't even need to give it a second glance. False teaching. Let's go into it together and take each of these apart. First of all, to build an undeceivable mind, you need a clear conviction about falsehood. Now, I'm going to go into a lot of depth in verse 8 because he uses so many different descriptors to take apart what all false teaching is. Now, it's interesting. He begins with a critical idea. Be aggressive about defending your faith. I cannot emphasize this enough because in my career of dealing with people who struggle in the faith or who depart from the faith, who suffer intellectual crisis over their Christianity and collapse, this is one of the first things they don't understand. They automatically feel they're on the defensive with challenges to the faith. They automatically tend to believe our faith is weak. They automatically tend to believe that it's not very defensible. And they, they come with an attitude of passive defeat. You think about people as you've interacted with them. Tell me this isn't true. Paul says, don't let that attitude operate in your minds. Instead, you see to it that no one takes you captive. Isn't that a command? It's present, it's active, and it's imperative in the Greek text. That means you need to be doing this all through your Christian life. You're going to have threats to your belief system all the way in your life until you see Jesus Christ. But he says, you need to be aggressive about defending your faith. The word, see to it, a Greek word that said, be aware and take charge. That's how you translate it. Be aware of deception as it comes at you and take charge of it. Stand against it. See to it that you're not taken captive. There's the whole premise. You do not need to be deceived. You stand in a position of supernatural strength. You can stand in the truth. Wish so many people heard this today. That's why the phrase deconstruct or deconstruction, I think it's a term that's actually been adopted by people who have left the faith almost as an explanation that they almost had nothing to do with losing their faith. Someone deconstructed what they believe or they allowed it to happen or the environment of the intellectual challenges deconstructed what they believe. That's a passive word. I don't accept it. You see, I think many people did not have their faith deconstructed. And I say this, by the way, with, with all the compassion I have and can have for somebody who's in a faith battle. It's not easy to have your faith challenged in this culture. It's not easy to operate in a university environment as a believer. It's not easy to operate in the public schools as a teacher or administrator in the morass of deception and control that's going on there. It's not easy to be a Christian in this darkened, intellectually hostile world. But 
If you take a passive position and you believe that your faith is deconstructible, I think you're taking the wrong point of view. Paul says you can see to it that it's not. I would suggest that some of us who've seen people have their faith deconstructed, I think we're actually seeing some people who didn't deconstruct their faith, they failed to defend their faith. Now, I'm not being critical. I'm trying to be scripturally clear and give you some confidence and confidence for those that you love. Now, how do we deal with this? How does Paul deal with it? You'll notice that Paul does not take a lot of time to take apart all the details of all this weird false teaching. It would have taken a lot more chapters in Colossians to do that. Now, he does answer some of it in this chapter. He does confront some of it, but you'll notice what he spends most of his time doing. He, he, he develops some clear convictions about all false teaching, particularly in verse 8. And he basically says, he doesn't give detailed answers to answer the false teaching. He gives these believers certain clear convictions that's true about all false teaching in general. And that if they believe those things about false teaching, these convictions of how bankrupt it is, listen, that they won't even give false teaching a second look. And that's the basis of confidence. False teaching that swirls around my life today, I don't give it a second look because I have ultimate confidence in who and what I believe. I don't take a passive stance and I don't take a very interested stance. Why should I take the mind God gave me and the life that God has allowed me and wrap it around getting involved in and deconstructing, if you will, falsehood? I ignore falsehood. I walk in truth. Now, the reason I do that is because I know how bankrupt all false teaching is. You will know how bankrupt it is after this message, because in verse 8, Paul gives us seven different qualities of all false teaching, whether it's cultic or liberal Christianity or secular humanism or statism, whatever it is, they all have these qualities. And once you know these qualities, you won't fool around with it. So let's walk through them together. You follow me in the argument? Here we go. There's seven things he shows you in verse 8. It's full of revelation, if you will, about all false teaching. Number one, the first conviction you need to have about all false teaching is this. If you come to believe it, it will control your life. So many people are confused about this today. They think Christianity is just another belief they could have, they could hold on to if they desired to, and it's comparable to any other belief. Oh, no, it isn't. And when you give in to false teaching, your whole life will change. This isn't just changing a a basic belief. It's changing what defines your life because it affects how you see God. If you come to believe any false teaching, I don't care of what variety, atheism is a false teaching. Cultism is a false teaching. Whatever it is, you come to believe it'll control your life. I get this from the fact that he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Isn't that full control? False teaching, if you let yourself succumb to it, will control your life. The word take captive, it's another one of those military terms that Paul was fond of using. It meant to strip someone of their weapons and armor and lead them captive as a war captive in your power. That's what happens in the battle for truth. 
It means that, that the deceiver strips you of your weapons and your armor. They strip you of what you believe about God so that you're helpless before their beliefs and they lead you captive in their thinking and they control your life. It's interesting, in my experience, false teachers don't go out to seek the lost. Instead, they sneak in to kidnap the found. You think about it. Believers are the subject and the target of false teaching today. And you are a target, and if you come to believe false teaching, it will control your life. This isn't a small thing. It's why on our website, when we talk about our doctrine, right there at the top of the webpage, you'll see a statement that I think it, it, it's essentially been part of what our staff has thought for a long time. It's a statement from A.W. Tozer that says, what comes into your mind when someone mentions the word God is the most important thing about you. And it is. And of course, that's the thing that the enemy wants to destroy more than anything. So beware, if you come to believe false teaching, it'll control your life. Why fool around with it? Number two, he says, it's, all, it's sourced in human thinking only. It's sourced in human thinking only, he says. It'll take you captive, and they do it by philosophy. Philosophy. What is he speaking about here? Philosophia, the Greek word from philos, which meant friend or lover, and Sophia, which meant wisdom. It literally meant a love of wisdom, a love of the product of human thought. Loanida in their uh, Greek New Testament lexicon say this word especially means, listen, human understanding in contrast with divinely revealed knowledge. So important. They will challenge what God has divinely revealed through his word with their human philosophy, their human reasonings. And these reasonings always involve Rejecting any revelation from God, or if they do accept revelation from God, they distort it. That's a cultist, for example. Or rejecting any revelation from God altogether, that's the agnostic or the atheistic philosopher. But they come at the ultimate questions of life, they step into the place of God, and they use human reasoning to substitute themselves for God. So it's sourced in human thinking. Notice I say, period, only. The point there is that human thinking is inadequate to answer the ultimate questions about existence and God and purpose and meaning and life and death. It's totally inadequate. So his implication here is that they want to challenge the revelation of the living God with their own puny philosophies. Now, philosophy is not mentioned often in the New Testament. In fact, there's, this is the only place where the word philosophia is actually found in the Greek New Testament. It shows you the level of importance God gives to what man thinks. <laughs> not very high. Now, 1 Timothy 6 does refer in a certain sense to knowledge. It says, O Timothy, Paul wrote, guard what has been entrusted to you, the gospel and the revelation of God, the word of God, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and look at this, and thus gone astray from the faith. Philosophy, man's rendition of knowledge about ultimate things, is empty chatter, he says. It's falsely called knowledge, and if you're captured by it, you will go astray from the faith. So philosophy is talked about in the negative scripturally. Now, it doesn't mean Christians should be ignorant about philosophy. 
It doesn't mean Christians should not be aware of the philosophies of the world and the matters of logic and other things. It doesn't mean we should be ignorant. We should be well-equipped enough to answer the basic issues that the world's philosophy throws at Christianity. I'm not saying be ignorant. I'm saying don't give it credibility because the Word of God doesn't. It comes from only human thought. We shouldn't be reluctant to study philosophy. It can help us refute error and defend the truth of Christianity. We, we, we can understand it, but we should have no interest in believing it, is what I'm saying. Philosophy is an interesting uh, and disappointing discipline. You know, there, some people have simply described it uh, in, in, in matters of, well, it's, it's frustrating and it's circular and unproductive. Um, People have said philosophers are people who talk about something they don't understand and make you think it's your fault. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's true. You've probably heard this one. Philosophy, a philosopher is, 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 is a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. I mean, I just, you know, <laughs> I've heard that one for years. But it really, when you look at the end product of where philosophy takes us, it's true. It's always still groping. Hugh Sylvester said, philosophy has shown itself over and over again to be full of arguments, but lacking in conclusions. And it's true. It's a lot of storm and, and, and fire and smoke and mirrors and angry challenge. But when you get into the other side of what it offers, there's nothing there. G. Campbell Morgan once said, philosophy has been a quest, but never a conquest. He's right. So why would you allow your entire life to be dominated by something that's sourced only in human thinking and that ultimately has led to no essential answer? So here's the third. He says, not only will it take you captive, not only is it based just on human thinking and philosophy apart from God, but thirdly, it will lead you only into emptiness. He says, it is empty, empty deceit. The, the core of it has no reality. The word kenos in the Greek, it, it meant something that, that you could look at, but when you essentially broke it open, you found there was no there there. There was nothing in it. Empty. Looking at something that seems to have meaning, but you get to the heart of it and there's nothing there. And, and yet so many people say, well, well I don't know. My, the, the accusations against the faith that I've, I've been going through in class in college are just so strong and they're so intimidating and the confidence of my professor is so high and I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm struggling. Well, it's okay to struggle. You're under attack. <laughs> but don't lend great confidence and respect to what they're saying or believing because in the end, it's empty. The Bible says it's empty and deceiving. Now, all you have to do, if, if you want to illustrate that, I'll illustrate it from philosophy itself. All you have to do is take a look at the last chapters of how philosophy is played out, both in the world itself and in the, in the lives of people that have been some of the greatest secular philosophers in history. I mean, you think about society as a whole. Take any teaching or maxim of Socrates or of Plato, who are regarded as two of the foundational thinkers of the discipline that became philosophy. Take any maxim that they taught, Socrates, Plato, and then ask yourself whether any nation has ever been transformed by it from barbarism to culture. It's going to be a hard thing to answer 
You can't find anything that's traced over history like that in any lasting way. It might have influenced a person or a set of people in some right direction, but who's ever heard of someone's whole character being transformed by any observation of Confucius, for example, or Socrates, or Huxley, or Darwin, or Mao, or Stephen Hawking, or Sam Storms, or even Josh Harris? No individual or culture or nation has been fundamentally transformed by any observation of any philosopher. I've never seen it. And you never will either, because human teachings are barren. I mean, I have never, and I talked to lots of people, I've spoken to thousands of people over the years of my Christian life and ministry about reality spiritually and about change. And I have never, ever heard anyone say to me, atheism gave me a new heart. I've never heard it. Have you? No. I've never had one person tell me, look right into my eyes and say, secular humanism has brought me deep personal peace. No one's ever admitted to me with confidence, evolution showed me my real purpose in life. (laughs) Or materialism solved my fear of death. You see, it falls apart in the human proving ground and all through history. It is empty and it will lead you to emptiness. But what about the people who have uh, lived it and died with it? Some of the great, you know, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great Bible preacher and expositor. And when he was asked about philosophy and how it compared to biblical truth, he said, if a philosophy, of, a, a philosophy of life cannot help me to die, then in a sense it cannot help me to live. Very interesting quote by that old preacher. He says, listen, okay, put philosophy to the test. It might sound good in a classroom or on some blog or, or in a podcast or whatever when you can control the environment of what you're saying, but watch how it works its way, its way out in the ultimate issues of life. And he says, you'll find human philosophy cannot help you to die. So it can't help you to live either. And when you look at the lives of the philosophers who held secular philosophy and how they faced death, they illustrate it. Bertrand Russell may be the most famous atheist in world history or English-speaking history. Let's put it that way. Late 1800s, the end of his life, he lived to the age of 90. He spent at least 70 years of that as a vocal atheist, a vocal vocal deconstructor, if you want to use the modern term of Christian faith. Highly secular atheist. And 70 of of the 90 years of life spent that way. But as he ended his life at age 90... He said this, philosophy has proved to be a washout to me. Okay. It failed in the hands of one of its most articulate spokespeople. How about H.G. Wells? I've mentioned him to you before, the, the inventor of science fiction, but most people don't know that he was a prominent atheist. He, he left his faith early in his college years. If he had a faith, I don't think he did. And he became a vocal opponent of Christianity, wrote many books against it, popularized evolution in society and applied evolution to human politics in a devastating way like Huxley did. But in in the end of his life, the last book he wrote was titled A Mind at the End of Its Tether. 
In other words, it was, it was his description of everything he concluded at the end of his life about the power of secular atheism and skepticism. And he came up with nothing. I've gotten to the end of my tether. In that last description, one of his last statements about life was, he believed that now man is going to lead himself to his own destruction. If the human mind leads the parade of history, he said, it will end up in dark destruction. H.G. Wells. Watch how they end, not what they teach. John Paul Sartre, the, the famous existentialist and descriptor of the God is dead movement, among others, said, life is an empty bubble on a sea of nothingness. So, so let me just ask you, you want to take the riches of what you have in Christ, the meaning of who, who he is, the power of what you know, and you want to go out and exchange it for that? See, that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, don't get involved in the weeds of what these fools say. Understand, they're fools. Thomas Hobbes, famous English atheist philosopher, on his deathbed said, I'm about to take a leap into the dark. I shall be glad to find a hole to creep out of this world. It will lead you into emptiness. It cannot answer the essence of life and it cannot confront the reality of death. Let's move quickly now. Paul says you've got to have a conviction about falsehood to begin with. Fourthly, fourth thing he says in this one simple verse is that all falsehood, all teaching contrary to Scripture and against what God has revealed, fourthly, is designed to deceive you. He says it's empty deceit. Make no mistake. If a skeptic wants to destroy your Christianity, he may say he wants to do it to free you from something that's been controlling your life, but the real agenda is he wants to use something else to control your life. When I was a skeptic and I attacked Christians and wanted to destroy their confidence in their faith, a lot of it was because I was so angry at who they were and what they had that I wanted to destroy it. All deception and skepticism is like that. The word deceit here is a Greek word that meant cheat someone out of something. Oh, they know the value of what we have and they're darkly inspired to take it. Don't you let anybody cheat you from what you have. Don't let it happen. See to it that no one takes you captive, Paul said. Number five, he said all falsehood is also built on human beliefs, period, only. That's different than human traditions or, pardon me, than, than human thinking. And, and point two, this goes into the word. He says it's according to, all this false teaching is according to human tradition. Tradition is a belief system that's handed down. The Greek word meant passed down. Paradidomai, it meant to entrust something to someone else. It pictures a giving over of a pa or a passing on. What he's talking about here is human beliefs and ideas that have been passed on generation to generation, but they're still only human. That's why he emphasizes it with the word, human only. Now, what's true about human beliefs? I'll tell you one thing that's true, and that is that they're not necessarily true. Does that make any sense to any of you? You think about it for a second. Listen, just because people have believed something and handed it down through the years does not 
make it true. Please stop being so gullible in, in, in the face of the smoke and anger and the, and the mirrors and whatever of secular call. It, it, just because people have believed something for a long time does not mean it's true. It's essential. You know what human tradition is? It's, it's based on no higher authority than that of human thinking. Now, step back a minute, and, and in our generation, take a look at what generations of thinking and values handed down in secular man from secular generation to secular generation. Take a look at what it's accomplished for us. Do you realize today that some of the greatest thinkers of our age have said two things about the state of the world that they've created? You read the news, and they'll say, things have become so bad here that we're going to have to go and colonize Mars. <laughs> they have said this fully seriously, and they put money behind it. This is where human tradition gets us in the achievement scale. Or just this last week, we have found out that the great, next great technological achievement in our world is going to build to be to build a meta-universe, the metaverse which is going to be an alternate world constructed through technological alternate reality. Okay, we've done so well at handling this world that our greatest new idea is to build a different one where you can be fully... Do you understand the self-deception of human tradition? I hope you think so. By the way, the idea of a metaverse, if it is achieved in some way, will be one of the most satanic things that's ever happened in human history. Satan himself has always been eager to construct a world where God didn't belong. And if somebody can create a virtual world where God doesn't belong and it's driven only by human desire, what is that? It's a mimicking of the very heart of Satan himself. Personally, beloved, this is why I believe the coming of our Lord is nearer and nearer. Because technology has given the wings of man's sin another level of flight. And he's going to create dark consequences. We could be approaching a Genesis 6 time when mankind's evil had flourished so much that God said, this must be judged. Personally, that's how I look at it. Let's move on. That's another message. Last two things, and I know we're running hard on time, but stick with me. Sixth thing he says about all human deception and is that it's controlled by demonic forces. He says, not only is this according to useless and human tradition, but it's according to the elemental spirits of the world. Most difficult part of this text to translate from the Greek is this phrase, elemental spirits, stoikeion in Greek, and it meant an ordered row of things. Uh, it could have meant two things. The elemental pieces of knowledge, they used it in their language to talk about the basics of any field of knowledge. You could call it the ABCs of whatever discipline it was, the basics, the ABCs, A, B, C, lined up after another, the full of... Or it could also describe spirits <laughs> lined up in battle or in order. Um, I've studied this quite a bit, and I believe that 
it can be both. I'm not the only one that believes it and teaches it that way either. I think that he may be referring here to the beliefs of man that are, that are backed by spirits. Now, what, what would be the ABCs of human tradition? What would be the ABCs of, of, of mindless, deceived human thinking? Very quickly, you can see them in Romans 1. Romans chapter 1 is an MRI of the fallen mind. Without going into a lot of detail in this sweeping chapter, Paul talks about three dimensions, the ABCs, if you will. Look at verse 21 of Romans 1. For although they, although they, mankind, knew God, they knew the evidence of God from creation and from the call of their own conscience, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. The, a, the first element of human tradition and, and deception is that God, there is no God. Or if there is a God, he's not the biblical God. He's a God we're going to design, an idol. Mostly, though, it's completely atheistic in its foundation. There is no God. Look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. What's, what's the second dimension of all fallen human thinking and deception? It is this, that man's mind can answer all. Claiming to be wise. Wise in the place of God, verse 21. So A, verse 21, there is no God. B, man's mind answers all. And look at verse 23. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. There's the third of the ABCs. And that is that man is the ultimate being. Man is the measure of all things, as the secular philosopher said. That's right at the top of the manifesto of the secular humanist movement in the world today. Man is the measure of all things. So what are the ABCs of a fallen mind? A, there is no God. B, there are, man's mind can answer all questions. And C, man is the ultimate being. He's the measure of all things. Well, take a look at what kind of a world that creates. Go down to verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. When did that happen? At the fall. And it's accelerated in surges ever since. What does human culture look like since God has given it over to a debased mind? Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous malice, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy. Notice, full of. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Do you not see that that is the world environment that we're hurtling through today. Now I ask you, if demons were to build a world, wouldn't it look just like that? Paul said, human philosophy is so fallen that the very elements of it, the ABCs of how man thinks, are demonically dominated. Don't fool with it. And don't give it credibility. Number seven. 
Lastly, he says, it will consistently lead you away from Christ. He says, all of these things are not according to Christ. See, people say, oh, I gave up my faith because it no longer made sense to me, or there was arguments made that I couldn't overcome. Listen, you don't just have a belief system intellectually. You have a personal relationship with a living Lord. What did you really have? There will always be questions about faith. That's why we call it a faith. You will never find any belief system that doesn't have areas of question or grayness or difficulty to explain. But we have not only been given satisfactory revelation, God says it's sufficient, Romans 1, we have encountered a living God. Don't let anything that would consistently lead you away from Christ capture you. So look, look at this logically. Paul is basically saying here, why would you give up all that you have in Christ and all that you know in the, in the word of God for something that if you come to believe it will control your life, that's sourced only in human thinking, which is bankrupt, that'll lead you only into emptiness and all of history and all of human experience proves it, that's designed to deceive you, that's built only on human beliefs that as they've been handed down have led us to absolutely nothing but ruin, that's controlled by demonic forces and will consistently lead you away from Christ. His question is rhetorically, why would you get yourself involved in that at all? The answer is, See to it that you don't. I hope you get the point of Paul's argument here, and that is don't passively give up your faith. Here's, let's bring it all to a close. The last big idea in his description of how to have an undeceivable mind is secondly, that you develop a compelling conviction about Christ. Now you see the language turn. He says, see to it nobody takes you captive Verse 9, for in him. In other words, because you have so much greater riches in Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The, the short translation of this is, we have everything in him. Why would you trade that for nothing? <laughs> it's pretty simply clear, painfully clear. Now, there are two things that he says here that we have in Christ. Number one, in Christ, we can fully know God. Verse 9, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That means Jesus has always been God. He was God in all eternity past as the word with the Father. He, he took on a human body at the incarnation. That body was glorified at the ascension. He's the God-man today in heaven. He is fully God now listen, when you know God, you know the answers, you don't need to go anywhere else. That's what he's pointing out. We have everything we, we know to fully know God, and that means you know the answers about death and morality and truth and everything else. Second, in Christ we can fully trust God. That's, that's verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Not only is he God, but through the marvel of the, the person of the Holy Spirit, when Jesus said, he who is with you will soon be in you, and that the New Testament says Christ is now in you, the hope of glory, God himself and the person of the Holy Spirit has come to indwell your very being, and you now have the ability through his power to know and trust him and to live a fulfilling life. 
You don't need to go anywhere else. This is why in 2 Peter, the scripture tells us in, in beautiful language here, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, the text says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life. How? Through Christ's presence with us and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, look at this, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption of the world. That means that Jesus Christ dwells in you. In a certain way, when you were born again, you gained a new nature that knows truth and loves God. And that new nature can now lead you to walk by faith, claiming the promises of God so that everything that God wants you to do, you can do. And everything that God wants you to know, you can know. You can have a fulfilled life just as God designed it, all through who you already know. Well, I guess one of the key elements of this whole line of thinking is is this. Christians with a compelling conviction about Christ They don't just have a religion they believe in. Listen, they have a relationship they treasure. That's why I don't really buy the word deconstruct. Because that's, you know, lots of people, lots of things rather, can deconstruct a belief system. But it's a lot harder to destroy a relationship. And so I fundamentally look at this whole great tension of people leaving the faith. And and I go back and people say, what's the answer? Do we need more research? Yes. Do we need more arguments? Yes. All of that's valid. Do we need need to attack the philosophical challenges? Yes. Do we need to deal with evolutionary theory? Yes. Do we need to deal with with all of these, these challenges about the veracity of the Bible text and everything else? I'll say yes, 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 yes to all that. And we've got a ton of weapons. Christianity is defendable. But I also want to go back to the fundamental question of someone that's, that's being tempted to fade away from the faith or has walked away from the faith. How real is it? What did you really walk away from? Did you have the essence of a real relationship with God or not? Have you ever noticed that how differently you treat something if you're just renting it and you don't own it? I mean, if, if you're renting a house... You know, you're not going to change the filters as often. If that fence starts to sag in the side yard, what are you going to do about it? Nothing. It's really not your problem. You don't own it. Somebody else will come along and probably deal with that later. Even those holes in the wall you made when you moved the pool table. I mean, it just... Oops. <laughs> you don't pay as much attention to it. And... Won't you leave it if you find out about a better rental house deal and somebody gets you in the door? Would you leave it in a heartbeat? Of course you would. Why? Because it's not yours anyway. But if you own something, if you own a house, oh, it's different. You value it because you chose it. You may have invested in it or you've sacrificed to get it financially and maybe you're still sacrificing to stay in it. There's a sense that you paid for it. It's a sense that it's not replaceable because it's one of a kind. If you or someone you love are fading or walking away from the faith, one of the most helpful things, and I know it's hard, but is to explore how real is what you're walking away from to you 
in this whole question. I find that some people who have lost their faith, particularly younger people, in a sense were renting someone else's religion. Not all, but some. What do I mean by that? They adopted a belief system because it had been handed down in their family line. They had been Christian. They had been Baptist. They had been EV free. And they lived in it, and they just it was something that was given to them, but it wasn't entered into by them. Or they held on to a faith that their parents taught, and, and they were in their parents' influence, and it seemed to be something they were renting from their parents. And when they got into the real contest of ideas in life, or they married a person who's a Christian, and they don't want to disappoint her, and so they've held on for a certain period of time, and then they just finally get tired of playing the game. So in a sense, they're renting someone else's religion. And you'll walk away from that when you get a better deal or something convinces you. So are you renting someone else's religion or are you treasuring a real relationship? That's really the fundamental question that I think needs to enter into this whole thing. Paul says here, treasure who you have, who you know, what he's done for you and what he's shown to you. Don't cheaply give it over. Understand the danger of what is battling for your mind. See to it that you are not taken captive. 